So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would continue to move in this church and these families. Lord, as we come to your word, this is an extension of our worship. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts of reverence to hear what Paul called the the breath of God, that the scripture is God-breathed. And Lord, so we ask that you would shape us, move us, use us unto the glory of Christ for your good pleasure. And we love you. We thank you for all you're doing. In Jesus' wonderful name, somebody say amen. Well, John Knox was the greatest Scottish preacher, reformer. He's called the father of Presbyterianism. He's famously known for his controversies with Mary Tudor, who we call Bloody Mary because she continued to put Protestants to death, hundreds of Protestants she sent to the flame. Knox's life is kind of dodging Bloody Mary and dealing with this conflict. Um, Mary Tudor was a Catholic and wanted the kingdom to remain um, committed to Catholicism, and Knox, as a reformer, was obviously critiquing the areas in which the Catholic Church, where Rome had um, parted from the true gospel. And so at one point, John Knox flees to Geneva, where he spends time with John Calvin, really develops his theology there with Calvin. He calls Geneva the most perfect school of Christ that there ever was on earth since the days of the apostles. He returns from Geneva back to um, England, where he'll preach against Mary Tudor with conviction. He was known to be the preacher of preachers. One note taker said that he made me so quake and tremble, I could not hold my pen to write. It was under such conviction, they couldn't take notes. He really calls a stir. Eventually, he leads um, Scotland to to leave Catholicism and to place Presbyterianism, um, the leadership in its place. And anyway, the history, modern history, oftentimes calls John Knox a misogynist because of his rebukes of Mary Tudor. He says at one point. Um, of her in a sermon. He says, God will send his Jehu to slay Jezebel and her followers. Speaking of Mary Tudor, and apparently she didn't like being called Jezebel. Um, I don't know why. Um, And so uh, they call him a misogynist because he kind of goes after her in that way. But history says that he opened like schools just for girls. He wanted them to have theological training, believed that they should have the same standard of education as young men. That's, That's not what you call a misogynist. Um, but because of the way that history has been represented, they, um, many have canceled John Knox before canceling was even a thing. John Knox got canceled. And so, um, in Scotland and Edinburgh, they, um, they paved a, uh, parking lot right over John Knox's grave. The greatest preacher that Scotland ever produced the, the reformer, he literally changed their entire political system. They approved to pave a parking lot right over his grave. It's often said that it would be like America, uh, be like the States, um, tearing down the Jefferson Memorial and putting a parking garage in its place. Like having that kind of disdain for that important of a figure in your political history. And so today, John Knox lies under parking spot 23. Um, and you can visit his grave there. Now, I don't think he would be that offended by that because one of his big critiques was that Rome was erecting what he would call idolatry to saints of the old. And so I think he's probably very content to be under the parking garage, parking lot. Um, the Pharisees, as we study today, they have a type of false reverence for the prophets of old. If Scotland just puts a 
parking lot over the top of their saints. The Pharisees, what we learn from history and from Jesus' teaching today is that the Pharisees would adorn the graves of the prophets. They would um, celebrate the lives of the prophets through bringing flowers and um, they, they would make them great monuments. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees today is you love the prophets as long as they're dead. You love dead prophets. And that's a type of false reverence because you, you actually don't love their message or love their anointing or mantle that they carry. You only appreciate them as long as they're lying in a grave. So let's read from Matthew 23. This is the, the pinnacle woe that Jesus brings. And I think there's some vitally important things for us to learn here. Starting in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Just really quickly for our newcomers and to jog your memory for what we're studying here. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has several run-ins with the Pharisees and other religious leadership. And they're asking Jesus um, pivotal questions, trying to entangle him, trap him, so that they can present him to Rome as a usurper. So for instance, they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Hoping that he would say no so that they could drag him before Rome. Jesus, after being tried by them three times, he asked the Pharisees, who are again the spiritual leaders of the day, a theological question. He says, well, tell me whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, of course the Messiah will be David's son. And Jesus says, well, how is it then, and he quotes Psalm 110.1, that David wrote, the Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What Jesus was pointing to was quite a theological conundrum. How could Messiah be David's son and David's Lord? And of course, the only answer to that question is Messiah is both the son of God and the son of David. The incarnation is the, the only way that Psalm 110 makes any sense. But the Pharisees have no idea how to respond to that question. And so the scriptures say that they never asked him a question again. That was the right thing to do. Um, so as we move into Matthew chapter 23, Jesus begins to release seven woes towards the Pharisees and the scribes. What we learned studying this far is that a woe is not just a pronunciation of um, disapproval for the acts of a people, but it's also a prophetic pronunciation of coming judgment. And so as Jesus says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, he's denouncing their actions and pronouncing that there's judgment coming quickly. In other words, he's saying, I wouldn't want to be you when you get what's coming towards you. A.T. Robertson calls this Jesus's thunderbolt of wrath. This is a moment of great frustration. He's fed up with the religious leadership of the day. And so today we're studying the seventh and final woe. It's the, the pinnacle, the kind of, you know, the, the narrative is rising. And this is the strongest rebuke that Jesus releases. Jesus says, you love the prophets in their graves, but you will fill up the measure of your father's. 
They say, if we lived in the days of the prophets, we would have heard their words. We would have embraced their messages. We would have not watched as Jeremiah was struck on the mouth and thrown into a cistern. We wouldn't have participated in the, in the plot to saw off Isaiah's head. We wouldn't have stood around while Micaiah was struck by Zechariah and told to be silent. We love the prophets. We love their message. We love their anointing. We wouldn't have participated in persecuting them. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, up to the point of Jesus' ministry, was the greatest prophet the world has ever known. Yet the Pharisees stood by, watched, mocked him, and had nothing to say when Herod takes off his head. Yet they say, we love prophets. And what does Jesus mean by saying, you will fill up the measure of your fathers? He says that all those who have been murdered from Abel to Zechariah, their blood will be on the heads of the Pharisees. Now, the, in New Testament Judaism, the, the Old Testament was ordered differently. And so our Old Testament ends with Malachi. Same books, just different order. Their Old Testament would have ended with Second Chronicles. And so Abel, he said from Abel, who was obviously murdered by Cain, the opening chapters of Genesis, and Second Chronicles concludes with Zechariah being murdered. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is from the start to the finish, their blood's on your heads. How do they fill up the measure? Well, that seems to me to be plain. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses prophesied when he said there would be one after me who knew the voice of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire prophetic imagery. He is the fulfillment of every prophetic word. He's the ultimate prophet of prophets. And while they stand and say, we love the prophets, under their breath they plot the murder of the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth. When you hear the words of Jesus, you hear the words of God himself, yet they reject him. And so Jesus says, you're serpents, you're a brood of vipers, you are deceiving sons of Lucifer. Keep playing along, keep pretending to love the prophet while you plot my murder. You will crush the fulfillment of every prophetic word and crucify the Son of God. Now, this really is an important and significant concept that the religious leaders of the day would love prophets, profess to love prophets, adorn their graves, yet in their hour vehemently reject, violently reject the prophetic role of their day. And we have to ask the question, how is it that you can say we love the prophets while denying the prophet? And that seems like just straightforward to me. And it, I would just say this. We love to watch somebody else get rebuked. We love to read history and hear of the kings of Israel who have gone astray and Elijah coming out with great anointing and power and rebuking them in their tracks. We like to hear of someone else's sin called out. We like to hear of judgment coming on another people group. We like to read the Old Testament, and as we read it, we read ourselves in the story, but we're the prophet, we're not the one being condemned. And so Jesus is saying, you read the story, and as you read the story, you read yourself as being like the prophets, the holy ones. But in reality, the, the truth is, you love to listen to someone else's rebuke. 
but you're far too self-righteous to recognize, too spiritually dull and stupid to realize that the rebuke is aimed at you. They say, we're not followers of Jezebel. We're not worshipers of Baal. We haven't sacrificed our kids to Molech. And as they look back on history, they're they're building up their own self-righteousness by saying, look, we haven't done what they've done. I think Jesus would analogy here lies perfectly where he would say that you look for the speck in your brother's eye where you have a telephone pole hanging out your face. Jesus says, no, you like to point out, you like to acknowledge the sins of past, and you, you actually enjoy the drama of the prophets coming and rebuking a people group. We need to be careful that we don't look back at the church of generations before us, look back at our grandparents' churches and say they sung old hymns and they dressed stiff and they were religious and cold. Those holiness people, they were, they were just religious. And look at us, we're modern with lights and modern music. We're moving, we're going somewhere. Well, we might be going straight to hell, right? Like, like just movement for the sake of movement isn't, isn't holy. And our pastor used to say there was a season, I think the season has passed, where churches would always promote themselves by saying, we're not your grandma's church. And our pastor used to say, I know my grandma's church knew how to pray. It's it's easy to look back at generations and say, we are superior to them. And if we were in their day, we would have loved Wesley. We would have loved to hear George Whitfield preach. We would have loved to hear Jonathan Edwards hang his congregation over the fire of hell, preaching sinners in the hands of the angry God as they wept and trembled and repented. We would have loved to have been a part of that. And then the question lies, but like, would we? My contention is that if John Wesley were to preach in any Methodist church in our hour, it wouldn't be long before he'd be run out. My contention is that we love, I love Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a lawyer and he preached the word. And as he preached, people would shake and run to the altar and repent, give their lives to Christ. And I love to read of Finney, but would we love to sit in his congregation when the words were aimed at us? Jonathan Edwards made a profound remark when he said that pride is the chief sin of man and God's greatest enemy because it's, it's a, it's a, Really interesting thought. Jonathan Edwards said, Pride is so detrimental because you have a self-righteous view of yourself and you actually believe it. The problem with pride is that what you believe what you believe about yourself. And so when a prophet or a man of God begins to preach and teach the word under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and he's calling us to repentance, you'll reject the word. He must be talking to someone else because you're so spiritually dull that you actually believe what you believe about yourself. It takes humility, maybe the chief characteristic of the Christian, to listen and to hear. I'm probably as guilty as any of saying, I'd like to hear the old-timey preachers. I would have loved to hear that. And the question lies, but would we? So Jesus says, you love the prophets of old while you stand here with stones getting ready to take my head off. 
Well, then the question becomes, well, how then do we make sure that we don't make the same mistake? How do we make sure that we don't just say, we love hot preaching and we, we love the great awakenings. We talk about the great awakenings so much. Would we really appreciate the preaching of the great awakenings? Because as far as I can tell, the entire posture of Western Christianity is, you better be nice, preacher. As far as I can tell, that seems to be what I get. Be nice, be nice. I was reading Vadi Bachman's latest book called Fault Lines. You should read it. It's really important for this hour. And he said, the 11th commandment of the Western church is be kind. And he said, and all other commandments bow their knee to that one. Don't call out someone's murderous actions if that's not kind. And he's like, the entire Ten Commandments crumble under this one false premise that kindness is chief. I think it's very necessary that we ensure that we don't participate in the utter slaughtering of the definition of the word love. Because the word love is not just being redefined. It's being slaughtered, okay? Um, what we've called love in, in the West is passivity. Love is leaving people alone. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you have children, love does not just leave them alone. In, in marriage counseling, I will always say this, and I believe this with all my heart. Jealousy within the context of covenant is holy. Jealousy in a dating relationship, I get it, okay? I get it. But jealousy in the context of covenant is holy, meaning that I should love my wife with a jealous love. I am jealous of her affections being aimed at any other man because I'm, I'm protecting our covenant. It's the reason why God calls himself a jealous God, because we are covenantally his and his alone. And when our affections and desires go after other idols, we feel his displeasure because he's jealous for us. Real love for Christ will welcome and adore those who promote God's jealousy for us. When God puts his hand on a man or a woman and they begin to stand and preach and proclaim and call us to repentance, we are experiencing the holy jealousy of God calling us back to love him and love him alone. Love requires an object. To say that we are people of love means we love someone. Love today becomes this kind of laid-back posture. But to say I am a person of love means first that I love God. My love, my affection, my desires, my deepest dreams and wishes are all aimed at bringing God pleasure. And when Christ is the object of your soul's love, he's the first and only treasure that you cherish when he is the prize and the joy of your life, you will gladly embrace a man or woman who highlights to you areas in which you are not loving him well. Those whose heart postures have exalted Christ and Christ alone are eager to have their love for Christ purified. I think that sin and idolatry pollutes our love of God 
And when the prophet comes or the preacher, teacher comes to expose his holy word and call us to repentance, they are sifting out our love. Imagine the woman pouring her oil on the feet of Jesus. What she brought was holy and pure perfume. We want our love for God to be pure and the prophetic gift sifts it. And if you are constantly rejecting anyone who calls you to repentance, I would say that you probably don't really love God. You probably love self and persona. And you may say, oh, I love God. And I love my wealth or prosperity. And I love, I love popularity. And I love influence. And I would say that we are not polytheists. You can't love God and have eight other idols. You don't add him to your list of idols. To love God is to love God alone. And to allow him alone to be supreme in my heart. To worship and bow and cherish and adore him above all else. To say to every other idol, you are rubbish before me. Throw it all away. Jesus and Jesus alone, the glorious, majestic, wonderfully, beautiful, perfect, and majesty. That Jesus, he alone possesses my love and when when that becomes the posture of the church then they'll hear hard preaching and teaching and bow their knee to jesus and and because they realize that what's happening is their love is being sifted their worship is becoming more pure the prophetic measure in the scripture so as we read and study the Bible and we find the prophetic mantle, the call to repentance, the call to turn. That's a message through to through scripture. What we are experiencing is God's sifting. God calling us to a purer and higher and holier worship. It's very common in our day that some of the greatest most popular preachers of our day will say things like, I don't preach on sin. And like, I can't find a page of the Bible that doesn't talk about sin. And if you're, if you embrace that posture, y'all hear me because this is coming from a place of love. If you embrace that posture of like, I'm only going to listen to people who encourage me. Well, you may be encouraged in your sin. You may be being encouraged in a life that doesn't really bless Jesus. And that would tell me that your chief idol, your chief element, aim of worship is that building, is building yourself up and feeling better. It's comfort. But when your chief supreme God over your life is Jesus, then you're willing to hear someone say, turn, bow your knee. Be, let me touch some touchy, touchy things in our culture for a second. And you talk about the pornography rates in the church. We need to hear that men in the church, if we are addicted to pornography and participating in pornography, our love towards Jesus is polluted. And we talk about abortion in our culture. Um, it's a, it's, if we continue to um, allow for our culture to throw life away, our love for God is polluted. Be touchy. We have now for generations, let me just, be straight. For generations now, we have shoved our kids to public school and say, teach them some morals. As if the word doesn't say that it's our job to train our kids up in the way of the Lord. But you won't hear that if all you think that the preacher, the teacher, or all you think the Bible is supposed to do is encourage you. It is to encourage you. To love him better. 
to love him with a more pure love. We need to hear the call to pick up our crosses and lay down our lives to fully love Jesus. What's wrong with American Christianity? We love the prophets of old. We will adorn the graves of Wesley and Whitfield. But by God, you better not preach like them today. We love to talk about the great awakenings. But if people began to tremble and shake and weep at the altar, I guarantee you a quarter of you would be offended and leave. I see it all the time. I say to all those who are concerned more with preserving your reputation than loving Jesus, I say to you, continue on in your folly. But as for me and my house, we will love God more than our egos. And in this house, we're going to love God more than the pursuit of persona. In our church, we're going to love God more than our reputations. In our church, we will lay on the altar and cling to the cross, ready to die to every desire within us that God calls chaff so that our love for Jesus would be pure. In our church, we're going to let the Spirit purge us of everything that pollutes our love. Let our worship be pure and sweet on the feet of Jesus. Let our hearts be fully devoted to Christ's glory. We will refuse to simply read the scriptures. We will ask the scriptures to read us. I'm tired, tired of intellectual elites standing behind pulpits and telling everyone what their opinion is of the Bible. We will ask the question, what is the Bible's opinion of us? How does the Bible see our love for God? Worship, if you get ready to come for me. I was praying for for us for our church last night and um i have too many kids to have any like quiet place in our house so i'm stuffed in the three girls closet and my wife for some reason decided that they should be allowed to sticker their closet so now i'm trying to pray surrounded by little ponies and unicorns and mermaids staring at me and um and sometimes as you pray, the, the cry of your spirit starts to come out. And I prayed and prayed for a while. And I found myself starting to pray, God, wash us in devotion. We want to be a house that's devoted to Christ. That has daily devotional times because we're devoted to him. And I was praying for your homes and mine. Let our families really live lives of devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. Wash over this region, this community, with believers who are devoted to the glory of Jesus. I don't care if it looks like me, if the worship sounds like our worship. Just let it be wholly devoted to Jesus and Jesus alone. In conclusion, John of the Cross St. John of the Cross, like 14th century mystic, said that um, the new believer, the the babe in Christ, um, they live in a state of kind of spiritual bliss. He said that every time the new believer goes to pray, it's like chill bumps and God just washes in the room. And the new believer is excited and always willing to go, always ready to share the gospel because all of their life is kind of sunshine and roses. You know, the new believer, they, 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 they're, they've got it. They've got passion. And St. John of the Cross said that they're actually gluttons for, for spiritual pleasure. 
meaning that all of their focus and this season of spiritual immaturity is on God bathe me in your love for me. I want to know your love. Fill me. Let me be washed in your goodness. Bathe me in your love. And he said that God, like a good mother, does wash the babe in Christ over with his love. Washes them and washes them and washes them and washes them. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It may be the best season of your Christian life. And then after a while, as you grow and mature, God expects you to start standing on your own feet sometimes. And as you mature, he said, in this Christian walk, it's, you come to a place where it's not just about, God, bathe me in your love for me. And you start to transition into prayers of, God, I want to bathe you this morning in my love for you. And you go to pray and there's no chill bunks and the song's not just right and you're tired and groggy and the coffee isn't doing its job this morning. But you keep praying, Jesus, you're worthy and Jesus, you're beautiful and Jesus, you're better than life. Because right now it's not about you bathing me in your love. I want to bathe you in my love, God. And St. John of the Cross called that the dark night of the soul. When you begin to get to the season where God's not always carrying you with chill bumps. And he said, it's there and it's in that place where the mature believer begins to recognize that the trials of life, the suffering of life, the coldness that we experience, all it does is build a platform for me to stand and say, you're better, you're good, you're wonderful. Even in the darkness of night, you're beautiful. Yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. And it creates a platform of maturity. And, and I, I told the church this morning, and this is what I'll close saying to you, is I want us to be a church who transitions from the place that just says, God, bathe us in your love. We will experience his love poured out on us, and we will celebrate every time the Holy Spirit shows up and just leads us in his grace and his goodness. We'll love it. We'll celebrate it. But when things feel dry and stale and cold, I want us to stand up and continue to bless him and say, this moment is not about me. It's about your glory. It's about your goodness. It's about the great love that you put on display on the cross of Calvary. It's about your blood. And you are worthy of the highest praise, even when we don't feel like it. I want us to become concerned with the the content of our worship. Is it pure and holy perfume poured on his feet? Or is it tainted with idolatry, tainted with selfishness, tainted with sin? Are we concerned with how well we love Jesus? Because as far as I can see, that's what the bride of Christ really lives for. To love Jesus better. I want to love him better. Paul says, in the last day, there will be ticklers of the ears that many will, they'll gather for themselves teachers who say things that they want to say. They say, just tell us how great and wonderful we are. And it's a sign of the last days. I want us to be a people who say, lead us to love him better. We're okay with the hard word. We're okay with the hard word because we realize that it refines us. It refines our worship. That's the only way to love the prophet and not just to love the dead ones. If you would stand to your feet. If altar team, if you guys would get in place, there was a word this morning that some, there may be someone here who's struggling with a great measure of anxiety and stress. If that's you, come to the altar. We'd love to pray that God would deliver you of that. As always, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ Jesus, you don't know what you're missing, man. 
the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary would wash you clean. It would purify you. All of your sexual sins, all of your misconduct, all of your lies, deceit, every, every place of filth in your life can be dealt with because of what Jesus did. You may say, oh, I've, I've had really adulterous relationships or I've been to prison. The blood of Jesus is potent in its power, man. It will wash you and cleanse you. And your eternity, whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell, has nothing to do with your past. has everything to do with whether or not you'll bow your knee to Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Don't leave here without taking that message seriously. I want to ask the worship team to worship. And the altars are officially open. You come, whatever need you have. I want us to pray this morning that God would purify our love for him. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit, are there areas of my life that bring you displeasure? Are there areas of my life that taint my love for you? Because we want to love you better with a sweeter love. Come on, pray with me. You're worthy, Jesus. We thank you for your grace, God. We thank you that you graciously wash us of our mistakes. But Lord, lead us. Lead us to love you with a sweeter love. I want to love you with a sweeter love, Jesus. For another minute, let's pour our love on him. You're so good to me. You're so wonderful. Righteous. Father, we do. We just say we love you more than life. You're our daily bread. You're so good to us. Lord, we don't want to live under condemnation. Lord, we don't want to live navel-gazing and nitpicking our lives. But we do want to love you. Lord, we do want to love you. So use us for your glory, for your honor. It's in the great, mighty name of Jesus. We pray everybody say amen. Amen. Well, the altars are going to stay open. Worship team's here. If you want to just linger in the presence of God, you're more than welcome. If not, we love you. We pray you have a, a blessed week, and we are praying for you.